really enjoy singing that song together. Uh, it's a, a scripture song taken from Psalm 51, verses 1 through 8, uh, and uh, worthy of our uh, meditation, uh, reflecting upon uh, the words of scripture and the, the words of that uh, song. But this morning we will be uh, continuing uh, in our study in, in John's gospel. We left off uh, several weeks ago uh, in John chapter 10, and I would ask you to, to turn there with me uh, this morning. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 31 through 39, contrary to what your bulletin says. Sometimes I change my mind uh, and uh, expand or contract uh, the passage. Uh, but as you're, you're turning there, uh, plagiarism, uh, the, the stealing of someone else's ideas and representing them as your own, uh, is currently a significant issue uh, in uh, high schools, colleges, and, and universities throughout uh, America. And there are uh, numerous uh, websites, uh, if you are such a student, uh, desperately in need of uh, a last-minute assignment, and you would desire to, to copy someone's work and claim it as your own, there are numerous websites uh, where you could find pre-written papers uh, that you could turn in on various subjects. And some of you high school students are, what was that website? No, uh, I won't give you that. Uh, but uh, this presents a, a significant challenge uh, for teachers and professors, right? Because you have to really evaluate every single uh, paper that comes your way and check to see uh, if it is somehow being uh, copied and, and pasted or, or plagiarized uh, from somebody else. And there are uh, many ways that uh, teachers and professors have begun to, to check uh, the work of their students. Uh, and an easy way is to take a, a particular uh, phrase that's a little bit unique. Don't, don't enter a, a common phrase, but they take a, a particular unique sentence from the, the essay or the, the exam, uh, and they just copy and paste it into Google and search uh, and see what comes up. Uh, and if uh, it comes up repeatedly or in one or more places, uh, they're able to, to determine that, it, okay, this was uh, plagiarized from somebody else. Another way, to, the easy, uh, easy way to evaluate and see if uh, plagiarism or copying has taken place in an exam uh, is if uh, two or more students uh, have the exact same answer and it's both uh, are an error, right? Uh, and if... Uh, it's easy to, to spot an incorrect answer uh, that's been copied from someone else. They uh, examined PE, if they had those, uh, that a touchdown was worth four points, right? Uh, and two, two people said that, uh, you know, okay, they probably copied off of each other. Or if two people said that uh, America was still a, a British colony or that the capital of uh, Idaho is Pocatello uh, or that two plus two equals three, uh, you could be pretty certain uh, that those two answers are connected in some way, right? That some, one person has copied uh, off of another, uh, that, that plagiarism has uh, taken effect. And uh, there is one particular objection uh, to Christianity that is often plagiarized. Uh, it is uh, often uh, repeated uh, or parroted uh, over and over again. And what most people don't realize when they uh, parrot this objection to Christianity uh, is that they are copying off of an error. Uh, they are copying others who have said the same thing, uh, but they are all incorrect. Uh, and I've heard this particular claim on, uh, on numerous occasions. And if you engage in uh, evangelistic conversations uh, frequently, you've probably encountered it yourself. And if you haven't, just wait. Uh, and have some more conversations. Uh, but this oft-repeated objection to Christianity is that Jesus 
himself never claimed to be God. He never said he was God. That's, that's the claim that many people will make. And really, in, in making this claim and trying to present this argument for why you reject Christianity, uh, to say that Jesus never said he was God, well, they are really revealing their own ignorance. Uh, and uh, in that moment, what you should not do uh, is bludgeon them with your Bible. Okay? That's not uh, the go-to path. Uh, a good question to ask in that moment is, oh, well, have you read uh, the Gospels for yourself? Right? H- have you read and understood who Jesus uh, described himself to be? Uh, do you understand what his claims are? Uh, and if they say that they haven't read the Scriptures, you can say, wonderful, would you be willing to read them with me? Right? Uh, and they may say, yes, I would greatly appreciate that. Would, would you, uh, you know, read that along with me and praise the Lord? And then uh, you can just point them uh, to the scriptures and very clearly show them uh, who Jesus is and wh- exactly who he claims to be. But I would venture to say that those people who make this type of claim, when you throw out there like, hey, have you, have you read? They'll probably say no. Uh, and then if you said, well, would you be willing to read with me? Uh, they may also uh, repeat that same prior answer. No. Uh, and, and in this instance, they, they're stuck in this particular view. They're stuck in their error. Uh, and it's very much uh, what we've seen so far in the Gospel of John among the uh, religious leaders, right? Uh, they are spiritually blind, and they are blind to their blindness. Uh, and the only thing that can help them uh, is the light of Christ, and that is the one thing that they are rejecting and turning away from. And there are uh, numerous passages in Scripture, if somebody really did want to to understand who Jesus is and who he claimed to be, uh, you could take them to many passages throughout the Gospels. But uh, I would uh, venture to say that the passage that we're going to look at this morning might be uh, the easiest place in Scripture uh, to, to show somebody that indeed Jesus very much claimed to be God. Uh, and uh, this is uh, made obvious in the verses that we're going to, to look at. And since it's been a, uh, several weeks since we've been uh, in John chapter 10, I would just uh, remind you that uh, we're in a section that begins back in uh, verse 22 uh, and lasts through uh, the end of the chapter. And uh, we are at a, a feast of dedication, also known as uh, Hanukkah. And we talked about that background to that feast several weeks ago. And interestingly enough, Hanukkah was just this past week. Uh, being celebrated. I got a notification on my iPhone calendar, uh, and so that's how I know. But uh, what we see in John chapter 10 was that Jesus was was walking uh, through the, the temple uh, in Solomon's portico, uh, and there were a, a group of Jews who came, and it says that, that the text says that they literally surrounded Jesus, uh, and they began to, to speak to him, and they asked him uh, to speak to them plainly. Uh, they said, hey, uh, if you are the Christ... Tell us. Tell us publicly. Make it known to us. Uh, and so that they come and they're interrogating him. And really, this was just a, uh, a setup. They were trying to, to trap him uh, in something that he would, would say. Uh, and uh, his immediate response uh, is that he has already spoken plainly. Because you're asking me to speak plainly, but he, I've already done that. And uh, Jesus then uh, changes topics briefly, and he explains uh, that they uh, are not believing him. So I've already explained, they refuse to believe. And then he explains uh, their unbelief. 
explains why they have not come to believe in him, and he describes it in, in the sense of uh, that they are not among his sheep, that his sheep hear his voice, uh, and they respond, and they follow him. And then Jesus spoke about the security of those who are his sheep, uh, that those who are his sheep uh, are in his hand, uh, and no one is capable of snatching any of Jesus' sheep away from him. And then Jesus uh, explained the, the theological uh, support for this claim that no one is able to snatch any of Christ's sheep away from him. And he explained it in this way. Uh, if you look with me there in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So Jesus explained this theologically. of God is greater than all, uh, and no one is capable of uh, opening up God's hand and getting Him to release uh, any one of Christ's people so that they could snatch, uh, be snatched away. But then verse 30 Jesus adds one additional theological argument behind the the, the security of the believer. And he says, I and the Father are one. So not only is it God the Father have uh, Christ's sheep in his hand, but but Jesus has another hand there holding them tightly and securely. And, And Jesus has once again claimed to be equal with God, right? The people came up to him and they said, hey, tell us plainly. Who are you? Are you the Christ? And now Jesus is going to, uh, to go a little bit more. He's not going to say, I am the Christ. He's going to go beyond just merely claiming to be the Messiah. He has just claimed equality with God. It's a very big statement. But again, they, they wanted Jesus to speak plainly. And this is what he is doing. As we study this passage, uh, we're going to see how Jesus answers uh, this claim from our his modern opponents he never claimed to be god and, and i would say as as we study this passage you're, you're going to be you're going to have content you're going to have information to be able to dialogue about that particular topic when someone says jesus never said he was god i said well i know exactly where to turn and i can do this but but what we're going to look at this morning uh, it does have some apologetic value So mark it in your Bible. But even more importantly, don't just leave this in the apologetic category. Okay, this is uh, all in the devotional category. Uh, This is intended uh, to teach us to worship Jesus. Uh, This is intended to to change our eyes upward, uh, to look and behold, uh, to see Jesus for all that he is and for all that he has done. This is not merely to help us uh, win an argument. This is to help us grow in worship of Jesus, uh, the Son of God who came to live and die and rise again for sinners. But how do we know with certainty that Jesus claimed to be God? Well, what we're going to see here this morning in verses 31 to 39 are three pieces of evidence that verify Jesus' claim uh, that he was, in fact, God. And the first evidence that we're going to see uh, is in verses 31 to 33. Uh, And this evidence that I would uh, submit to your attention would be that Jesus' opponents verified his claim. 
you look with me at those verses, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. So the the statement of verse 30, when Jesus says that, that he and the Father are one, the Jewish leaders respond by immediately picking up stones. And they are ready to kill him right there on the spot for what he just said. And this is not the first time this has happened. This is not the first time that they have been ready to kill Jesus. If you, if you turn back with me to John chapter 5, verse 18. It says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. The the opponents of Jesus understood what he was saying about himself. They understood that he was claiming to be God. If you turn the page uh, over a couple more times to John chapter 8, another long debate and interaction between uh, Jesus and the the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, And at the, the culmination of this argument, verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus uses the divine name to speak of himself. And what was the response of the the Jewish leaders? They picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And then uh, just a short time later, we have the the passage that we are coming to and the the events in our own uh, portion of Scripture today. And so we see very clearly that the Jewish leaders understood exactly what Jesus was saying, what he was teaching. Uh, If you had asked any one of Jesus' opponents uh, why they were seeking to kill him, what would their answer be? Because he's claiming to be God, right? They understood exactly uh, what he was teaching. And what's amazing is that there's this, this mob who has surrounded him, and they literally have stones in their hand ready to kill him. And Jesus very calmly, very courageously just asks, so for which good work are you ready to kill me for? All right, which of my miracles are you going to stone me for? Uh, and, the, and the word good there is the same uh, word that Jesus used to describe himself just a little bit earlier in John chapter 10, that, He said he is the good shepherd. Uh, Which of these uh, beautiful, noble, good works are you going to kill me for? You're going to kill me for doing good? And his opponents clarify, no, 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 we're not going to kill you for doing good. We're going to kill you because you have blasphemed. Capital punishment in Jewish society mob justice they said we are going to kill you because you have claimed to be god even though you're just a man you've made yourself out to be god and it's it's important when we engage with others uh, about ideas 
when we're having apologetic conversations, we want to make sure that we rightly understand uh, our opponent's position. If we're going to have a debate with somebody, we don't want to uh, build a, a straw man. A uh, logical fallacy where we where we take their position uh, and we we change it a little bit so it's easier to attack or to address, uh, and we uh, we alter it so it's easier to refute. Now that's a, a logical fallacy that's easy to to fall into. When we engage in a debate, we want to accurately portray our opponent's positions, and so in that sense, we can commend the Jewish leaders here. They have rightly understood uh, Jesus' position. They are representing him accurately and fairly. Jesus has said that he is the Son of God who is their only hope of salvation. And the, the opponents of Jesus understand that. And that's why they want to kill him. They very clearly uh, are evaluating him accurately and representing him accurately. But... Uh, on, on the whole, their accusation is correct that he is making himself to be God, but there's one, one tiny nuance that would be incorrect. They are presenting it as if uh, Jesus uh, is a man and claiming to become God, uh, when the, the whole point of John's gospel is that uh, not that Jesus is a man who became God, but that he is God who became man. Right? That, that's the very uh, idea of what we are celebrating in this Christmas season, right? Uh, the doctrine of the incarnation, uh, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, uh, and we have seen his glory. Now, this is uh, what we see over and over again in John's gospel. A uh, slight nuance to what they are claiming, but it's a very important clarification, right? Jesus has been God from eternity past. He's not a man who became God. He's God who came down to be among men. And the opponents of Jesus during his own time, the charge that they brought against him was that you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Which is actually the, the absolute opposite of what modern opponents uh, would say, right? If they say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, it's one or the other. Uh, his, his ancient opponents said, you are a man claiming to be God. And modern opponents say, well, he never claimed to be God. One of these things is, is false. Uh, and they, they can't both be true. And that's what we need to, to see and understand. And if you encounter someone who says that Jesus never claimed to be God for themselves, graciously point them to Scripture. Offer to read the Scriptures with them. And as you read the Scriptures with them, uh, as you read the Bible, you cannot help but be confronted with Christ. Now, I, I know uh, I've heard many of your, your testimonies, uh, very similar to my own, that you had... Uh, like me, uh, a preconceived notion uh, about who Jesus is, about the Bible, about Christianity. But then, like me, you, once, you, once you start to read the Bible, I came with all of these ideas, and once I began to read about Jesus and, and see what he did and read what he taught, that changed and transformed me. Now, and that's what people need to see most. I would say get people to the Bible. Uh, bring them to Jesus. Help them to see and behold Him for all that He is. Urge them to look to Him in faith. Show them or allow the Scriptures to sign forth the message of the Gospel. 
that we have all sinned against a holy God, that we have all gone our own way, and that Jesus, the Son of God, who lived and died and rose again for sinners, is our only hope of reconciliation with God the Father, whom we have sinned against. Take people through the Scriptures and help them to see this message of a Savior offering His hands to us, willing to save us and draw us near to Himself. Again, this is the message of the Gospel, and this is exactly what the opponents of Jesus understood. They understood what He was teaching, who He was claiming to be, and we should be happy to share with others this exact same accusation. that Jesus is the Son of God. He is who He says He is. But there's more evidence that we can point to. Uh, A second evidence uh, in verses 34 to to 36. You can say that Jesus verified his opponent's accusation. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you were gods? And if he called them gods to whom the word of God came... And Scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. But Jesus verified his opponent's accusations against him. Jesus responds to this charge of blasphemy. They say, you're blaspheming. You're making yourself out to be God. And Jesus doesn't say, no, I'm not. Jesus is not going to address that charge of what he has said. He's going to address the charge of blasphemy. Indeed, Jesus accepts all of their charges against him, and he leans into it. So you're claiming to be God. Yeah. Uh, but let me explain why your charge of blasphemy is wrong. And, and he, his response to the, the Jewish leaders is going to do two things here. First, he's going to take the, the theological foundation of their argument of blasphemy, and he's going to turn it on its head. And he's going to do this uh, in, by arguing from lesser to greater. Uh, and this is what Jesus does uh, so frequently as he teaches uh, in uh, the Gospels. Uh, he, he's going to present a, a theological case th- that is true in a small sense, and then he's going to build from there uh, to a larger and greater uh, example. Uh, and he begins uh, his, his argument uh, by quoting from, uh, he, he points to, uh, he says, in the, the law, speaking of your law, the, the law that the, the Jewish leaders are so familiar with uh, and so passionate about, uh, and Jesus uses the word law to speak of the whole Old Testament here, and not just the first five books uh, of the Bible. And uh, he's going to cite Psalm 82, verse 6, uh, which says, uh, I said, God speaking, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Uh, and so the, the whole uh, point that Jesus is trying to establish is that there are times in the Old Testament uh, where God uh, himself uh, speaks of human beings as being God. He used this word, which is speaking of human beings. God himself calls them gods, and he calls them sons of the Most High. So if that is the situation, that God himself uses that type of language to speak of human beings, Jesus says, so why is it blasphemy for me to do it here? So he establishes that that first 
layer, lesser context. Uh, but then he, he builds upon it in verse 35 and 36. Because he goes, if God uses that language just to describe normal human beings, how much more so uh, is Jesus able to use that exact same language of deity and of sonship uh, to describe himself? When he, uh, if you look at verse 36, uh, is, has been consecrated or set apart by the Father and sent into the world. Right, this is the argument from, from lesser to greater. God has used this language to speak of uh, normal humans, and Jesus is speaking about himself. Uh, and so this charge of uh, blasphemy uh, has no foundation. Uh, he cannot be guilty of uh, blasphemy in this sense, because God himself uh, uses this type of language to speak of human beings, arguing from, from lesser to greater. And if you think about it, hypothetically speaking, just imagine for a moment, uh, if Jesus really was a mere man, I think this would have been the time that he would have cracked, right? If you're a man and you're putting on this facade uh, and claiming to be God, uh, in this moment, when you were kind of ambushed by your opponents there in the temple, uh, and you've said something to upset them, and they are literally there with stones in hand ready to kill you. Mob justice uh, is just inches away. If you were just a mere man, what would you do in that situation? Say, okay, guys, I'm just kidding. Can we, can we talk, right? What do you want me to say to make this right? Right? Wouldn't that be what a normal man would do if this has all been an act? This would be the time for, for Jesus to deny what he has said in order to, to renounce his claims and save his own life. But as Blaise Pascal once put it this way, I believe those witnesses who get their throats cut. Meaning, I believe those men who are willing to die for their testimony. Right? Why should we believe those men who are willing to die for their testimony? Because they know it is true. And they're going to speak the truth even if it costs them their life. And we see that with the apostles in the book of Acts, that they are willing to stand boldly before rulers and before kings and say, no, I'm not flinching here. This is what is true. And the reason they are willing to do that is because where are those disciples right here? They're with Jesus. They're seeing what is happening right here and right now. And Jesus is not flinching. He's courageously standing because he knows what he has said is true. Jesus is truly God. He's not bluffing. He's not a mere man. He has claimed to be God and he is exactly who he has said he is. But there's something else that his quotation of Psalm 82, something else that that quotation does. And to really understand how or what else this does, I want to encourage you all to, to turn with me to Psalm 82. Because uh, Psalm 82 not only refutes the theological grounds of blasphemy against Jesus, but it is also an indictment against his opponents right here and right now. 
So if you look with me at Psalm 82, begins a psalm of Asaph. Verse 1 says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, there's a variety of interpretations uh, regarding what this means. Uh, and uh, the best one, as we're going to see uh, throughout the remainder of the, the psalm, again, if you really have a question about how to interpret something, just look at the context. Uh, and the context will tell you. How should we understand the gods here? Well, uh, God is saying he is uh, there present, uh, and it's speaking of gods who are sitting in judgment, uh, but that gods is referring to human judges. Because human judges, uh, they have uh, an authority delegated to them by God. And they are to judge righteously because who will every human judge have to answer to? The final judge, God the Father. And we know these are human judges uh, because look at what is said in verses 2 through 7. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. What you have in Psalm 82 is you have God the Father presiding over human judges. And what is he doing? He's rebuking them for miscarrying justice. They have not cared for the the poor and the needy. They have abused their power and shown partiality to the wicked. Verse 5 says, They have neither knowledge nor understanding, and they walk about in darkness. And all the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now also think back, what was John chapter 9 about? The the man who was born blind and healed by Jesus. And that blind man who was healed is able to see Jesus clearly and plainly and to behold him for who he is. But the religious leaders who claim to have sight are actually those who are blind. They have no knowledge or understanding and they walk about in darkness. Then verse 6. This is the verse that Jesus quotes in our passage. He says, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Verse 7. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. What's the reminder and the warning to the unjust human judges in Psalm 82? Repent of your uh, miscarriages of justice. Judge rightly, because every single one of you will one day die and you will have to stand before the ultimate judge. And how does the psalm end in verse 8? Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. And what we have to keep in mind is that when in John chapter 10, these men who have surrounded Jesus and who are coming and accusing them and who are ready to kill him right now, these are theologians. These are, these are scholars. And when, when Jesus brings up Psalm 82, they would know the context of what he's saying. They would know that he is speaking an indictment against them. That they, at the, that exact moment, are not judging rightly. That they are unjust human judges who need to repent, who need to remember that they will give an account to God one day. By citing this psalm, Jesus is acting both as the, a defense for himself and a prosecution for the religious, against the religious leaders. 
He defends himself against the charge of blasphemy and he indicts these religious leaders as unjust human judges. That's what we have to, to see and that's sobering. We need to remember exactly what Jesus is reminding these human judges about. We need to remember that God is the final judge over all people and over all human history. And this is so important for us to remember on a daily basis, moment by moment basis. Because this truth should be a comfort to us when we are experiencing injustice, right? When, when uh, those who are in power and authority are not ruling rightly, what should we remember? They will answer to God. They will have to answer to Him. So it should be a comfort in those moments, but it should also be a warning in other moments because are there times when you and I miscarry justice? Yeah. When we do not judge rightly and we are among those types of judges that are condemned in Psalm 82? Absolutely. We need this truth that God is the judge. And we must also keep in mind that what is most important, of how, the, the most important thing for us to judge rightly is who Jesus is. And again, that is the exact thing that these, uh, his opponents in John chapter 10 are not doing. But that is what we must all do. We must rightly judge who Jesus is uh, because as John, Jesus has already taught throughout John's gospel, God the Father has entrusted all authority to the Son. That Jesus, uh, who we must judge in one sense, also will judge us in another. John chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. Jesus says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. When when Paul was, was preaching in the city of Athens, this is what he said in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. Paul said, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus verified the accusation of his opponents and he indicted them as unjust human judges. But then he also points to a third piece of evidence that supports his claim to be God. And this is in verses 37 and 38, which I read earlier, but we can read it again. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And this, this third piece of evidence that Jesus points to is his own miracles. He says, hey, uh, my miracles verify uh, that I am God, that he, that he is one with the Father. And uh, G- Jesus gives a, a hypothetical situation here. Uh, in essence, he's, he's going to exhort uh, those who he has just condemned as unjust judges. Now he's exhorting them to judge righteously. And he gives them this hypothetical. He says, if I am not doing the works of God the Father, right, if, you, if you, we were to observe Jesus and he was doing other things, uh, he, he gives a command. If that was the case, 
then we should not believe in him. Now, Jesus establishes this, this important truth that blind faith uh, can be very, very foolish. Right? We are not called to a blind faith in Jesus. We believe in Jesus because what he said is true. If it's not true, we shouldn't believe it. Jesus establishes this here. And he's saying, judge rightly. If he's not doing the works of God, don't believe in him. But if Jesus is doing the works of God, which he is, then there's also another parallel command, right? Uh, If he's not doing the works of God, we must not believe in him. But if he is doing the works of God, we must believe in him. There's an obligation there. Because that means that all that he is saying is true. And the implication is that when we see the miracles of Jesus for what they really are, we will behold Jesus for all that he is. When we truly and genuinely believe. Jesus is saying, if nothing else, be convinced by the miracles that he has performed. And we also have to to keep this intention with things that we saw earlier in John's gospel. Because what we see earlier in the gospel uh, is that there was a, uh, a population of people who were just following Jesus kind of as like an entertainment sideshow. Like they liked the miracles that Jesus was performing. Uh, and, and that's what they believed in. But they didn't believe in Jesus himself. Uh, and what Jesus is outlining here is that when we understand the miracles, what he did... And what the significance of those miracles is, we will believe in Jesus as well. But the miracles serve to validate the message of Jesus, that he is the Son of God. Now, our, our familiarity with the Bible and our familiarity with uh, the miracles of Jesus it can sometimes cause those miracles to, to lose their shine. Right, we uh, the the impression that the miracles of Jesus make upon our soul seems to diminish with time. Right, what's that old saying? Familiarity breeds contempt. Right, uh, and and we have to we have to guard against that because each and every miracle that Jesus performed in his earthly ministry uh, is a proclamation of his deity. Uh, And we need to see and behold Jesus for all that he is. Because the miracles that Jesus performed were only miracles that God could do. Uh, The Bishop J.C. Ryle, uh, 19th century pastor and theologian, says this. The mighty miracles which our Lord performed during the three three years of his earthly ministry are probably not considered as much uh, as they ought to be in the present day. These miracles were not few in number. Forty times and more we read in the Gospels of his doing things entirely out of the ordinary course of nature, healing sick people in a moment, raising the dead with a word, casting out devils, calming winds and waves in an instant, walking on the water as on solid ground. These miracles were not only done in private among friends, many of them were wrought in the most public manner, under the eyes of unfriendly witnesses. We are so familiar with these things that we are apt to forget the the mighty lesson they teach. They teach that he who worked these miracles must be nothing less than very God. They stamp his doctrines and precepts with the mark of divine authority. 
He only who created all things at the beginning could suspend the laws of creation at his will. He who could suspend the laws of creation must be the one who ought to be thoroughly believed and implicitly obeyed. To reject one who confirmed his mission by such mighty works is the height of madness and folly. Amen. That's what we must see and behold. Don't uh, get so familiar with the miracles of Jesus that you are not taken aback in awe by them. That's the message that Jesus is saying here. These miracles that his opponents cannot deny, right? When when he says, for which of my good works are you going to stone me? They don't say, you haven't done any good works. They say, we're not killing you for that. They they can't deny what he has done. But they still say, we're going to try and kill you. And as J.C. Ryle says, that that is the the height of madness and folly. Because a comprehension of Jesus' miracles should lead us to trust him completely. And if you look at the final line of verse 38, this understanding of, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And those uh, words know and understand, John uses the the same Greek word twice, uh, just with different verb tenses. Uh, And the idea is that you, you come to a comprehension of who Jesus is. And then there is an ongoing, continuing growth of knowledge about who Jesus is, and particularly who Jesus is and how he relates to God the Father. Right? That, that he is co-equal with God. He's, and the way Jesus uh, phrases this, it makes it clear that he's equal with God, but also distinct from God. Now, that, that's the tension within the, the Trinity, right? Uh, that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. They are both God, but they are separate and distinct persons. The fancy and, and elevated theology here. But this union between Father and Son, it, it might seem like a, an abstract theological point that kind of just stays up in, in the clouds, but it's actually profoundly practical. So because uh, of the, the mutual theological term, the mutual co-inherence of the Father and the Son, it means that uh, the power of the Son is the power of the Father and vice versa. Now, additionally, we must be convinced of the power of our Savior, right? It's easy to get overwhelmed in the here and now. With everything that is happening in life, with all of the trials that we face on a regular basis, it is easy to get overwhelmed by circumstances. But that's where we need the miracles of Jesus. Because the miracles of Jesus show us how great and how powerful He is. And if those lose their shine, when we have difficult circumstances here and now, what do we tend to do? We get discouraged. Because how big is our God? Itty bitty. But the miracles of Jesus remind us, they demonstrate over and over and over again who Jesus is and that He is God. God's power is His power. So what does that mean for our circumstances? Is He able to walk with us through them? Absolutely. Puritan William Gurnall says this, when we are oppressed with the weight of any duty and service in our calling, we must improve our trust in God's power. 
Perhaps you find the duty of your calling too heavy for your weak shoulders. Just lay the heaviest end of your burden on God's shoulder. Continue the work God sets you to, and His strength will be engaged for you. In a word, Christian, rely upon your God and make daily applications to the throne of grace for continual supplies of strength, because God has strength enough to give. That's what we have to remember and to keep in mind, and don't allow the miracles of Jesus just to become nothing or to become so familiar that we look at them with contempt. When we are convinced of the strength of Jesus, nothing in our circumstances will overwhelm us. But if our circumstances are larger than Christ, they're larger than His power, we will be overwhelmed. So we must look to Christ to see Him and behold Him for all that He is. And whatever we face, Jesus is able to sustain us in the midst of it. Because He is God. Because He is exactly who he claimed to be. He claimed to be God, and his word is absolutely true. So in these verses, we've very clearly seen the, these evidences that refute the idea that Jesus never claimed to be God. How do we know this? Well, even Jesus' opponents understood that he claimed to be God. And Jesus, when he was charged with this crime of blasphemy, doesn't deny what he said. He just says, you actually can't just, you can't charge him with blasphemy. He's still claiming to be God. His opponents verify, Jesus verifies their accusation against him. And then Jesus points to his miracles that verify that he is God. And at the end here, I would, I would draw your attention to, to two small points in this passage that will hopefully bring an additional comfort to your souls. The first is this, in verse 39. It says, Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hand. The idea is that he departed. And again, this is a portion of Scripture where I like, I want to know more details, right? Because again, angry mob that has Jesus surrounded, they have stones in hand, and then how does he get out of that, Right? What happens? But, but there's, a, there's a connection that we are intended to make in John chapter 10. Because what's interesting, it says that he escaped from their hand. In the Greek is singular. And we've already seen a hand in this passage of Scripture, in this very scene. Because when Jesus spoke of a hand, whose hand was he speaking about? The hand of the Father. And what did he say about the hand of God the Father? No one is able, no one is able to snatch away. But the hand of men, and we see at the end of the passage, it's not able to grasp. It's not able to, to seize anyone or anything that God does not want to be snatched. That's how Jesus escapes here. It wasn't his time. God is working all things according to His plan, according to His purpose. And there is a contrast between the hand of man and the, the hand of God here. But there is uh, another assurance here, that really a, a simple statement in verse 35. And I 
I, I passed over it very quickly because if I stopped, I'd have to stop for much longer. But as Jesus was presenting his argument from, from lesser to greater, he makes a, a very simple statement about God's word. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, unable. The, the, the words there describe uh, it is not possible for the word of God to break. It cannot be let loose. So we must keep this in mind. And again, this is, this is a wonderful apologetic passage. But more importantly than that, this is a wonderful devotional passage. Uh, this is a passage that's intended to reorient our hearts in worship to Christ. And we must build our lives upon His claim that He is God. And we must build our lives upon the absolute trustworthiness of His Word. The Scriptures cannot be broken. To quote J.C. Ryle again in his commentary on this passage, he says, We find Him, Jesus, using a text out of the Psalms as an argument against His enemies, in which the whole point lies in the single word, God's. And then, having quoted the text, he lays down the great principle. The Scripture cannot be broken. It is as though, he said, wherever the Scripture speaks plainly on any subject, there can be no more question about it. The case is settled and decided. Every jot and tittle of Scripture is true and must be received as conclusive. The crowd which which sought to murder Jesus on that day did not believe that Jesus was God and ultimately they did not trust in the Word of God. But we must not be like them, right? What they very clearly rejected, we must very clearly build upon. That Jesus is the Son of God, equal with God who came and lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death, and rose again on the third day so that all who would look to Him in faith could experience the same. That we could be rescued, reconciled, and redeemed and brought into fellowship with God. And Jesus is able to, to promise fellowship and reconciliation with God because He is in the Father, and the Father is in Him. These are the theological truths that we need to be convinced of, and these are the theological truths that we need to have written on our hearts so that we can engage with them at any moment. Right? That's what we've seen today. When you're overwhelmed with circumstances, no matter what they are, you need truth. You need to be able to, to go to your, your theological bank account and say, I understand that I'm experiencing injustice here and now, but I can entrust my God, myself to God who will judge me rightly. And he will judge every unjust judge on the final day. All of these truths that we have seen this morning should encourage our hearts, lead us to a greater worship of Jesus, adoring him, and ultimately giving all glory, honor, and praise to him. Amen?